Good afternoon. Good Sunday afternoon. My name is Lou Eisen, and this is Ring Talk. I'm so glad to have you here in this particular episode of Ring Talk because today we're going to discuss a very important fight uh, involving one of my all-time favorite fighters, the great Jimmy McClard. And this fight took place May 28th, 1935 at the Polo Grounds in New York City between defending world welterweight champion, two-time undisputed world welterweight champion, Jimmy McLaren and challenger and former world welterweight champion, Barney Ross. Ross was a three-division champion. He had held the lightweight world title, and he'd also held the synthetic junior welterweight title. It's called synthetic because it wasn't really recognized as it is today um, as being a legitimate title, but it did exist, and and... People claimed it at times, rarely back then, but Ross did, and Ross was a great fighter. Ross was the next great Jewish fighter. A lot of the fighters back then were Jewish, an overwhelming amount. And that was because of the times that they lived in and because of the racism that, the, you know, it was difficult for, for Jews to find jobs in other professions. And so boxing was one of the professions that didn't have those limits. Not to say they didn't experience racism. They did, but Ross was the natural successor to the greatest Jewish boxer of all time, Benny Leonard, the former lightweight world champion. So you have uh, Jimmy McLarnon, who uh, I wrote it down here just so I wouldn't forget it, but it's considered to be the greatest Canadian boxer ever by BoxRec. BoxRec also called him the second best welterweight ever and the second best pound for pound fighter of all time. The interesting thing about him, he has 69 fights, 55 wins, 21 KOs, 11 losses, and three draws. But if you look at the list of guys that McLaren beat, he beat 13 future world champions and Hall of Famers. So it's quite astounding. I don't know any other fighter who did that. He beat the great Fargo Express, Billy Petrol. He, he beat Bud Taylor, who had the greatest nickname, I think, ever in boxing, the Terror from Terre Haute. He beat, he knocked out his hero, but um, Benny Leonard. He beat Tony Canzanieri. He beat Lou Ambers. I mean, Canzanieri was the featherweight world champion. It was also a headbreaker for the Lucchese crime family at, at that time. He beat the uh, lightweight world champ, Lou Ambers. He knocked out um, Al Singer, Ruby Goldstein, Jackie Fields. Singer was never world champion. Fields was. Ruby Goldstein was was known as the jewel of the ghetto. He, he knocked out tons of fighters, and he was considered to be the successor to Benny Leonard, except for one thing no one knew about him at the time. He had no chin. And when he started to fight guys that could punch back, he started to get knocked out, eventually his career ended, and he became a referee. And uh, McLaren beat a host of great Jewish fighters. And McLaren was not at all in any way bigoted. He liked everyone. His hero was Benny Leonard. So he was called the Belfast Spider, the Belt and Selt. His most famous nickname was the Babyface Assassin. But they also called him the Hebrew Scourge and the Jew because he beat Jewish fighters. He actually went to court to stop New York newspapers who loved using alliterative names to describe fighters back then, especially when they could bring ethnicity into it because he had a lot of friends that were Jewish. Him and Ross were good friends and remained good friends for their entire life. They were quite close. So a man's ethnicity or religion meant nothing to, uh, to Jimmy McLaren. 
So McLaren has a, and Ross both have interesting backstories. And you have to understand, at the time this fight's going on, you have to look at the era in which it happened, which is the Great Depression. So this is 1935. This is the height of the Great Depression, when people are jumping out of windows. They can't find jobs. They can't, they're getting kicked out of their houses and apartments. They have no food. They have nothing. And Roosevelt started to help the country back by starting all these great public works programs. But while this is going on in the United States, there's several things that are happening. Hitler's gained power in Germany and Jews in Germany and get hurt and get killed. And Barney Ross is aware of this. McLaren didn't see himself, although the papers did, as a representative of the Irish people. He was just a fighter. Ross saw himself to an extent as the representative of the Jewish people and the natural heir to Benny Leonard. And even if he didn't want to see himself that way, he, he didn't really have much of a choice because his people looked at him that way. So Jimmy McLaren, here's the thing about Jimmy McLaren, one of my all-time favorite fighters, and he lived a long life. He lived till 97. He died in 2004. At that time that he died, I was working on the movie Cinderella Man. I was in Russell Crowe's corner. And also in our corner was my surrogate father, Angelo Dundee, and I was really upset when McLaren died, and Angelo had said to me, I wish you would have told me how much you liked him. I could have given you his phone number. You could have spoke to him, and that just killed me because I really would have loved to have spoken to Jim McLaren, who had, he had his faculties right until the day he died, and McLaren, except for three different fights, you know, in his career, uh, when I look at his record, you know, of how many um, fights, he had 69 fights, he only took three really bad beatings in his career. One was to Tony Canzanieri, which which he avenged. The other was to Ray Miller, who was a featherweight. But after the seventh round, uh, Pop Foster, who called McLaren my Jimmy, stopped the fight. He said, listen, you know, it's not a title fight. You're getting really beaten up bad, and we gain nothing by letting you take more of a beating. And that was why she stopped the fight. And the other one was a fight he won against Louis Kid Kaplan, the world featherweight champion, and it was not a title belt. Kaplan was no longer the champ. But Kaplan broke his jaw, the first or second punch in the fight. And McLaren said the bell rang, came out, touched gloves, and then a second later, I'm on my back looking at the canvas. And McLaren managed to come back and stop Kaplan, knock him out, but he really took a terrible beating in that fight. So except for those three fights, he pretty well went unscathed. Not to say he didn't get a cut lip or cut over an eye or that, but um, he didn't really take a terrible beating, which is why he retained all of his faculties. So, so McLaren was born in Ireland, and his family moved to Canada, first to Saskatoon to become farmers, which didn't work out. Large family, I think he had 12, 13 brothers and sisters. One of the youngest brothers died on the way over from Ireland on, in steerage class on the boat. And then they settled in Vancouver, where Father Sam ran a second-hand clothing store, which didn't make enough money. But during a soccer game, when he was about uh, 10, um, he got into a fist fight with a kid who was 16, 17, and he beat the hell out of him. And he didn't back down. McLaren was tiny. He was only 5'6", fully grown. Tiny guy, but had no fear and quick hands. At that game was Pop Foster. Charles Pop Foster became his manager and trainer. Pop Foster had seen John L. Sullivan fight. He'd seen the great Tommy Ryan 
the middleweight champ who he compared most to McLarnett fight. He was there at the, you know, at the beginning of boxing, modern boxing, when it was just a sport in the booths in England as part of carnival shows and traveling shows and circuses. And he walked up to the 10-year-old, he was friends with the family, and he walked up to 10-year-old Jimmy McLaren and he said, listen, listen to me good. If you listen to me and you train and really train and do what I say, I'll make you a millionaire in 10 years and a world champion. And he held true to that. I mean, he wasn't a world champion at 20, but it wasn't long after that he won the World World Tour title, and he retired of millions of dollars. And as Foster said to McLaren, there's only two reasons ever to get into boxing. One is because you enjoy it, which Foster didn't, and McLaren did And the other, of course, is to make money. McLaren always said, if I could make more money, you know, doing something else that was less stressful, I would. And so McLaren retired with all of his money well invested, and he made a fortune. So McLaren's fighting on the way up. And people talk about Manny Pacquiao, and who fought as a welterweight, and they say, well, you know, Manny was juiced. Manny Pacquiao was never juiced, never took steroids. He was tested voluntarily, surprise tests hundreds of times, and never caught once. And people say, well, it's not possible. It is possible to go from a flyweight to a welterweight because Jimmy McLaren did it. McLaren started at flyweight, and one of the guys he beat was Pancho Villa, the flyweight world champion, who wasn't champion at the time. And Villa died soon after the fight, not from McLaren, uh, but from gum disease, from diarrhea, which was exacerbated by McLaren's punches. But McLaren said forever after that Villa took him to take him seriously. So he's fighting, he's moving up to, from flyweight, then he moves up to featherweight, and he starts fighting and beating featherweights, and then he starts fighting and beating lightweights, and then finally he gets to welterweight. And McLaren's career shows you how a career should be managed, and that Pop Foster had two rules when McLaren was fighting. First rule was he had to be the heaviest guy in the fight, and he had to get the most money. And he stuck to that rule for every fight, except one fight against Barney Ross. And Ross and him have three trilogies. Uh, McLaren wins the world title, knocks out young Corbett in two minutes, 37 seconds of the first round, has to take a year off because he broke both his hands. McLaren always had brittle hands like most fighters. Has to take a year off. In that year, Barney Ross is fighting a lot. They have a fight. McLaren's rusty. Ross wins. But the scorecards in all three fights raised a lot of controversy because in the first fight you have, you know, one judge scoring at 13 rounds Ross, uh, one round McLaren, one even, and then another judge scoring it, you know, 13 rounds McLaren, one round Ross, one round even, and then the other judge scores it for Ross, so Ross wins. But McLaren didn't, and, and Foster didn't take Ross seriously in the first fight because he couldn't punch. You know, he had some knockouts on his career, but he was extremely quick. He was a smart fighter. And the question going into these fights was, how would Ross deal with McLaren's overwhelming one-punch knockout power? McLaren had heavy hands, which means he didn't have to hit you solid to hurt you or take you out. He could hit you a glancing blow and drop you. But McLaren had great leverage and great balance, thanks to Pop Foster. But you have two different styles meaning. You have McLaren fighting in the old style where he's straight up. And then you have Ross who's fighting out of a clinch. 
And so Ross and his managers, Sam Pien and Art Winch, had watched most of McLaren's fights. And they saw that when McLaren lost, he lost because guys were backing him up. Got, McLaren couldn't fight backing up. Most fighters can't, except for Ali, you know, or Archie Moore, Sugar Ray Robinson, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard. Very few fighters can fight well backing up. And McLaren wasn't, you know, was one of those guys who just could not do it. So you could back him up, and by doing that, you could take away his power. But few people had the power and the guts to be aggressive against Jimmy McLaren and back him up. Not many people could do that. So Barney Ross was born in New York City in 1909, and family moved to Chicago, where his father opened a candy store. Not long after his father was murdered, his mother had a complete nervous breakdown. They had, um, she had six kids. They all went to different orphanages, Jewish orphanages. And McLaren swore, or Ross swore that he was going to get them all back together. So Ross was un understandably angry about what happened to his father and about the police not able to catch the killer. So Ross got into a lot of fights publicly. He started to run errands for the outfit, the Chicago mob. He was never high up in it. He was just a low-level guy, a low-level errand boy. But there were mob guys that he knew, and he wanted to get more involved. They said, this isn't for you. You have skills. You know, start fighting. Start doing that for a living. And he had this great amateur career. And then Pian and Winch get him when he becomes a pro. And he turns pro, and he starts to do well. And his basic trademark was the fact that he was a smart fighter. He was very quick. He could get in. He had a great jab. He had different jabs. And up jab, up jab, puts his punches together, and then gets the hell out of the box. And so these guys are fighting, and they're destined to meet. Now, what makes McLaren interesting to me is the fact that during this time period in the 1930s, they had three fights, McLaren and Ross, from 34 to 35 over the course of the year. You know, May 1934. Uh, September 34, and then May 28th, again, 1935. And the thing about these fights, you have to remember when it took place. This is the Great Depression. And so people needed hope, and they needed something. They needed a reason to keep on trying to live. And McLaren and Ross's fights did that because they were representative not only to the Irish community and the Jewish community. They were representative to basically everyday Americans. These were blue collar guys, blue collar fighters. And so they have the first fight and Ross wins. McLaren wasn't happy about it, but he, he didn't complain. He said, I haven't fought in a year. You can't take a year off. And Barney fought a great fight. That's completely unlike guys today that will say, you know, I got ripped off. I won the fight. I got screwed. I mean, they were gentlemen at all times. Second fight, there was a big controversy. Uh, same thing with the judges. McLaren regains his title in a split decision. And Pian and Winch, Sam Pian, Art Winch, Barney Ross's managers, were furious because Art Donovan was the referee. Art Donovan was basically known for refereeing most of Joe Lewis's fights. He was a great Hall of Fame referee. And he very, 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 very skilled. He was Irish, so they thought there was an Irish conspiracy against their fighter, Barney Ross, who was Jewish. And so Donovan scored the fight for McLaren. And I thought, if you watched the fight, yes, McLaren won the fight. Ross fought well, 
but McLaren and edged him out. Unfortunately, Donovan made negative comments about Ross, not dealing with his religion, but said Ross was slow. He was not as skilled. This was an easy fight, McLaren. McLaren had him beat from the first bell. And as a referee, you have to be impartial. So when it came to the third fight, Ross's manager said, we're not going to allow uh, Barney to leave the dressing room if he's the referee. We're just not going to allow it. And in the second fight, we had two Irish uh, who used to who used to be the manager, great George Dixon, Canadian fighter, ever won a world title and lose it and regain it. Dixon won the Bantamweight and Featherweight world titles, lost lost the Featherweight, regained it, invented the uh, heavy bag, invented shadow boxing. So you have O'Rourke, you have four. Fortune has been out because he was a writer for the Brooklyn Eagle. And he also got into fist fights with other referees, and there were rumors he'd been paid off for fights certain ways. So people are saying, if you have a guy paid off to score a fight, how does he get in? How on earth does he get a license from the New York State Athletic Commission? Well, I'm going to tell you how. And this relates to the controversy, the major controversy for the third fight. The referee for that fight, and back then, referees judged the fight. You know, they scored as well as refereed. So one of the main things you have to understand here is that for world title fights back then, a lot, most fights, but especially a world title fight in any weight division, the referee was only named a minute or two before the fighters entered the ring. They didn't want to let gamblers know who's refereeing the fight. And so before the third fight, uh, there were rumors in New York that Jack Dempsey was going to referee the fight. And this drove McLaren's manager, Pop Foster, ballistic. He complained to the promoter, Mike Jacobs. The promoter wasn't Jimmy Johnson, who promoted the first two fights in Long Island at the Madison Square Garden Bowl, because he was the promoter of Madison Square Garden and its affiliate arenas. The promoter was Mike Jacobs, who went on to promote Joe Lewis and replace Johnson at Madison Square Garden. And Jacobs was himself a rogue who was only involved or interested in his own self-interest. So he said, apparently to Foster, I would never hire Dempsey as the ref because I don't want to pay him $1,200 for his fee, which seems small today, but you're thinking of the Great Depression. And to pay a guy $1,200 for one night's work, you know, people might not like that. But that was Dempsey's fee. I'm Jack Dempsey, one of the most famous people on the planet. So that's what I get. So... In order to ensure it wouldn't happen, Phelan, who was the commissioner, excuse me, Foster went to Phelan, General Phelan, commissioner of the New York State Athletic Commission, and said, you And Phelan said, he's not going to referee. And Foster said, and he said, like him. He said, it's not that I don't, but he's training Barney Ross. He's involved in the actual day-to-day training. That's a clear conflict of interest. He's also writing articles or having them ghostwritten saying that, that McLaren's old, that he's a bum, that he's fat, that he doesn't have it anymore. That's a conflict of interest. So there's no way that should happen. And he made the same um, threat that Pian and Winch made about Arthur Donovan if he ref the third fight. He said, if Dempsey is the referee for the third fight, Jimmy McLaren is not leaving the dressing room. We're getting dressed and we're going home. And so we get to the third fight, and they're walking, you know, McLaren's already taped, his hands are taped, gloved up. They get to the ring, and there's Dempsey in the ring. 
and Foster went ballistic. I mean, this was the polo grounds, which was sold out. And they could hear him in the highest seats, you know, looking at General Phelan and saying, you blank, blank, blank sucker, you blank, blank, blank this, you mother, blah, 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 and just cursing a blue streak at him. And he's screaming at him. And Phelan's just sitting there, you know, looking around, writing something. And he looks at him and says, are you done, Pops? You done? And he, he says, don't, you know, nothing to do with me. Talk to Oni. Talk to Oni. That's what it meant. Talk to Oni the killer man and who was the czar of boxing, the underworld czar. Why was this important? I'll tell you why this was important. Oni the killer Madden mobster controlled professional boxing at the time. Madden wanted Dempsey as the ref. Here's why it's ironic. Because Madden was childhood friends of Pop Foster. And when they left, when they went from Vancouver, they first settled in L.A., Pop Foster and McClarnett. When they came to New York, they, they came to say hi to Tony Madden, and they said to him, you know, we'll pay you whatever you want. And Madden said, no, no, I, I'm protecting you. No one can screw with you. No one will mess with you. You understand that? You have free reign. Because Madden and Foster had grown up beside each other. They were literally neighbors in England. So he thought, great. Madden's on our side. We're not going to have to worry about anything. No one's going to screw with us. In fact, in fact, there's a great story once where, where he was at... Madison Square Garden. He's taping Jimmy's hands. These two Italian gangsters come in, pull guns, and say to Foster, we're taking over management of McLaren. And he said, I'm not the manager. I got nothing to do with it. I'm just a trainer, which wasn't true. It was the manager. I don't know. I just have his number. And they called the number. And of course, it was only Madden's private number. And so they get on the phone. We're managing McLaren, and we're going to do this, this, and that. And if you have a problem, we're going to kill you and kill your family. And no one would dare talk to only Madden that way, not even other gangsters. So Madden hangs up, and about 20 minutes later, he walks in the dressing room with 10 of his goons and says, who made that phone call to my office? And the guy said, I did. And then, you know, he walks in, and 10 guys behind him walk in with their guns drawn, and these guys are, uh-oh. And these guys disappeared. No one found them again. No one saw them leave Madison Square Garden, but no one found them again. No one messed with Oni Madden. So Foster and McLaren thought, well, we're safe. He's not taking any money. The fights are on the level, so no one can mess with us. What they didn't know, of course, was that with Oni Madden, he was, the only thing he cared about was money, his own bottom line. So he controlled the nightclubs in New York. He controlled the Linovis. He controlled bootlegging. He was the power. And he, he was worried about the third McLaren fight. With, why was he worried? He was worried because McLaren made the mistake of saying before the fight, if I beat Ross this time, I retire. Only Madden couldn't allow that to happen because Jimmy McLaren was the biggest draw in all of boxing. In fact, in all sports. This was after Babe Ruth's best years. It was Jimmy McLaren. McLaren was bringing in huge million-dollar gates and he's making a lot of money. And when McLaren retired, he kept all his money. He retired, and when he passed away at 97, he was a very, very wealthy man. He invested all of his money in tool and die companies, and especially with World War II coming on, in plane parts, parts that helped the bomb bombardier doors, 
you know, when the door is open in the plane and the bombs drop. So he made all those little devices and he made millions of dollars off of that. And he didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't gamble. He saved all his money. So McClarnon was a very smart guy. And uh, Pony Madden wasn't going to let this cash cow get away. So this isn't to say, this is where people sometimes get upset. They say, what, you tell me Ross didn't win? No, I think Ross did win their third fight. I think he won it legitimately. What's called into question it is the 537. Remember those numbers, 537. That was Jack Dempsey's scorecard. Dempsey scored the fight five rounds for Ross, three rounds for McLaren, seven even. And that tells me one of several things. Either Dempsey doesn't know how to score a fight, which is wrong, um, or that Dempsey was asked to do that deliberately. And when his former conqueror, Gene Tunney, brought that out and said that he doesn't know what he's doing, the score is wrong, he did it deliberately, Dempsey got very angry with him, especially at Pop Foster, who complained after the fight. It was a close fight. It was a great fight. It was a close fight. You could see in the early rounds that Ross's speed was making the difference. Everyone thought Ross would stick and move, but he turned the tables on McClarnon. First two, three rounds, he's coming out after McLaren. He's backing him up, and he's trading with him. And he's taking McLaren's shots. No one would ever dare do that because McLaren was such a vicious puncher. He only needed one good shot to get you out of there. But Ross was doing this. He was forcing the action. He's going after McLaren. He's throwing these shots. And so because of that, you know, he's getting ahead in the fight. McLaren is standing there toe-to-toe, -to -toe and he's trading with Ross. He's landing the heavier blows. And this is the age-old argument in professional boxing. You have you have a, a guy who's a better puncher landing the better punches, McLaren, against a guy who's landing more punches. So when you look at how a fight's supposed to be scored, effective aggression, you have to give it to, to Barney Ross. Ross is winning the fight. In the middle rounds, McLaren stages a furious comeback, and he makes it close. Then you get to the later rounds, Ross is pouring it on. And then in the middle later rounds, 12, 13, 14, 15, McLaren's making a hell of an effort to come back at Ross, and he's hitting him with great shots. But it was McLaren who got tagged late in the fight where his knee sagged, but he stayed up on his feet. Both these guys are just going at it hammer and tong, but Ross's speed was the difference and his mobility he keeps turning McLaren, which was a smart thing to do you don't want to ever let a puncher get set so he keeps hitting him and he keeps turning him and sometimes unbelievably and to the frustration of his corner he's standing right in front of McLaren and he's throwing shots he, he's his attitude is i'm not afraid of you i'm going to do this i'm going to keep throwing punches i'm throwing punches and we're going to go at it here but he was quicker than in McLaren. And the thing about McLaren was he had a lot of wars you know, McLaren wasn't a stick and move fighter. He was a smart fighter. He was technically smart, but he got there firstest with the mostest. He had a tremendous punch, and McLaren would get in close, and he had a four, five, six punch combination where he'd hit you left hook to the liver, bring your arms down, hit you a right hand to the jaw, which would stagger you, followed up with a left hand to the jaw. Then he hit you another left hook to the liver, and then when you brought your hands down, McLaren would finish you off with the right hand. Straight right hand over the shoulder. That was what McLaren would do. And Ross knew this coming in. And McLaren's manager and trainer, Bob Foster, thought Ross is just a puffed up lightweight. He can't take the punches.
thing that impacted all the fights. The only time Foster ever made a mistake was during these fights, he agreed that 142 pounds and hadn't fought lower than 147, you know, in four, five, six years. Making 142 really weakened him. Whereas Ross coming up from 135 easily fought at 142. And also for all three fights, you know, these were the only fights McLaren was having in that year. But Ross had the first fight with McLaren, fought two or three guys. Second fight, fought another three guys. And that by the time he's fighting McLaren in third fight, he's fight ready. Even though he's been training, he's fight ready. You know, he hasn't taken time off. His skills haven't rusted. McLaren had to take time off because McLaren's hands were broken. And McLaren often broke his knuckles. So he had no choice but to take time off. So it, it was really, you know, it was quite difficult at that time. So... You have this third fight, and the before the fight, and after the fight, especially after the fight, Pop Foster, his manager, was very upset because he said, "You know, look at the man, look at the people in the fight. You have Dempsey. He thought it was a Jewish conspiracy, although he was not a racist, Foster, because Jack Dempsey's uh, paternal grandmother was Rachel Solomon. She was Jewish. Dempsey had Jewish blood. One of the judges was Abe Goldberg. He scored the fight eight six one." Ross, which is probably as close to a perfect score for that fight as you'll get. That was the correct score for the fight. The other judge, Lacron, who Foster said was Jewish but changed his name, which was not true, um, I think had had the fight something like seven, five, or eight, five for Ross, two rounds even. And so I didn't agree with that, but that's still a reasonable scorecard. And then you have Jack Dempsey, seven five three or five three seven. You know, five rounds Ross, three rounds McLaren, and seven rounds even, which is ridiculous. The problem is, as I said before, Oni Oni Madden wanted to protect his huge investment in boxing. He could not allow Jimmy McLaren to beat Barney Ross and then just retire, because then he's out millions of dollars, and he's not going to allow that. Now. McLaren and Foster, there's nothing they could do about it. Foster complained to the papers after the fight. He called Dempsey a crook and a criminal and a thief, and he did it deliberately. He had points. Dempsey wasn't a crook or a criminal or a thief by any means. But he did favor Ross, and he did train Ross, help train Ross, and he did write articles insulting Jimmy McLaren. That alone should have disqualified him, but it didn't. And people blamed the New York State Athletic Commission, but it wasn't their call. And then they blamed the promoter, Mike Jacobs. It wasn't his call. It was the call of Oni Madden. And so finally, to shut Foster up, they had a meeting at the New York State Athletic Commission. And Foster had evidence in black and white. Here are the articles Dempsey wrote. You're right, he wrote them. And here's film of him training Ross. You're right, that should not have happened. And he doesn't have an actual license from the New York State Athletic Commission to referee a fight. You're correct. He should have had that. And he hasn't even had the eye test. You're right, Mr. Foster. That was a mistake, and we're going to correct that. And they said, everything you brought up is correct. He should not have refed. But that's what Oni wanted. Why did Oni want Jack Dempsey there? Because he was still a big draw. Because of Dempsey there and hiding the depression, people are still going to pay money, even though he's a ref, just to look at Dempsey or talk to him or get his autograph. And Foster at that point knew, I can't complain to Odie Madden or call him names because I'll end up with a bullet in my head. There's just nothing I can do about that. Madden's word was law. 
he said that Dempsey would ref and score, and that's the way it went. Now, even if you take Dempsey's scorecard out, Ross still wins the fight, in my opinion. And for me, when I was very young, it was sort of a dilemma because my father told me, who, who grew up here in Toronto, and in, in, he was born in 28, so growing up in the 30s, him and his older siblings, brothers and sisters, and his parents, they loved Jimmy McLaren because he was Canadian, but they also loved Barney Ross because he was Jewish. And so it was, it was difficult if you're a Canadian Jew, who do you vote for? And my father wanted, of course, Jimmy McLaren because McLaren was the Canadian. And McLaren went to his grave years later believing that he beat Barney Ross. Nat Fleischer said, it was one of the worst decisions he ever saw. He was the owner and founder of Ring Magazine. He said McLaren beat him and gave him a beating. In fact, 16 sports writers, New York sports writers, six thought McLaren won the fight. And that's a fair amount because usually they're for their American fighter or their hometown fighter. There were a lot of people that thought McLaren won the fight. Ross came out with worse facial injuries, which always brings the question up after a fight, you look at the two fighters, who would you rather be? And Ross went on to fight a lot more times after that. And Ross's record, you know, when you look at the guys that Ross beat, I mean, Ross beat a lot of great guys. He beat middleweight champ Seferino Garcia three times. He beat Izzy Janazzo. He beat uh, uh, Frankie Click, the Fargo Express. Billy Petrol, he beat Tony Canzaneri, you know, he beat Battling Badalino. And after this fight, McLaren only had a couple more fights. He took the worst beating of his life against Tony Canzaneri, who made the worst comments about McLaren's wife. And then in the rematch, McLaren gave him a slow beating. And by that, I mean, he had Canzaneri out several times, but he didn't knock him out. He wanted to punish him. Then he easily beat Lou Ambers, and he retired. And he retired because... When he met with Pop Foster, Pop Foster had said to him, listen, you know, it's what, 1936? You ha- it's the midst of the Great Depression. McLaren had almost $2 million in the bank. Um, he didn't need the money, and he had money coming in. And, and Foster said, we only fight for money or because we enjoy it. You've never enjoyed it, and we don't need the money. Nothing left to prove. Why wait for a fourth Ross fight? And they weren't even going to fight for the title originally because all Foster and McLaren were interested in was making money. That was it. It's a business. It's entertainment, but it's a business. And only as an afterthought did Foster say, we should probably win a title, Jimmy, just, you know, so 100 years from now, people will know how truly great you are. And that's why he fought for the welterweight title against, against Young Corbett and knocked him out in two minutes and 37 seconds. He also had fought before for the lightweight title, against Sammy Mandel, but lost a decision. And then subsequently, later on, went on to beat Mandel several times. So Ross wins the third fight. Ross goes on to beat, I think, have 18 more fights. He finally loses the welterweight title. So a man is considered the first or second uh, pound fighter ever to have lived, Henry Armstrong. In fact, in that fight, he was giving Ross such a beating the Ross's management wanted to stop the fight. And he said, if you stop the fight, I'll never talk to you again. So they sent an emissary over to Armstrong's corner and they asked if he would carry Barney for the last five rounds, which Armstrong did, and allowed Ross to finish on, on his feet. 
So after the careers are over, they have di di divergent careers. Ross had to fight a lot during his career because he was addicted to gambling. He had a love for the ponies. And he, was, he did reunite his family eventually. But he lost money all the time. He never had much money because he was spending it all on horse racing. So what happened was, what happened was, is that after the fight, um, after his career is over, you know, he, he joins the U.S. Uh, Marines, fights at Guadalcanal. He wins the Silver Star of Merit. He gets injured, and they give him morphine. He gets back to the States, and he gets hooked on heroin. And he has a battle with heroin. And it almost killed him, but with the help of Jimmy McLarnon and great medical help, he was able to beat it. In 47, 48, he helped through his former mob contacts raise millions of dollars and millions of guns and machinery and weaponry for the new nascent state of Israel. And he continues on, but when you look at him, he's in the late 40s, early 50s. His hair is gray. He's not a well man because, you know, he's smoking and he had this heroin addiction. It took years off of his life. And so... Ross and McLaren became very close friends. I, I don't know why people love to hear it, but they were very close. And McLaren never publicly, they never publicly dissed each other. They never privately dissed each other either. All McLaren would say is, well, I, I thought I won the third fight. That, that was it, you know. But he said, it's more important that Barney and I are healthy and that we're friends. And they, they you know, they would go over to each other's house. Ross would come in from Chicago. Ross, unfortunately, became friends with Jack Ruby, who was the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald uh, after the Kennedy assassination. And actually, he had to testify in front of the Warren Commission, uh, Barney Ross. Ross never lost his mob contacts. Jimmy McLaren had been good friends of Oni Madden. But you have to understand, in that point of time, in that era, he didn't really have a choice. You're not going to say to Oni Madden, well, you're a gangster, I can't associate with you because that gets you a, a sure ticket to the Boneyard. So, you know, Rob, McLaren never badmouthed him, but he never badmouthed anyone. That was just Jimmy McLaren. So McLaren lives out the rest of his life in California with his wife, his beautiful wife and three daughters and adopted son. And then when his wife passes away and his children have moved to Seattle, he moves up to Richmond, Seattle, and he's there now. He lived to be till 97 years old. And as I said, I could have contacted him had I had the uh, foresight to do it and asked Angelo Dundee for the phone number. McLarnon uh, was a teetotaler, but apparently he would go to Cauliflower Alley, which was this club for ex-prize fighters in California when they'd have meetings to see all those old prize fighter friends. And then he would have a drink once in a while, but that wasn't until his late 60s. So it's quite amazing. Here's a guy who didn't drink he never smoked, but he didn't drink until his late 60s, you know, and he was a gentleman to everyone. The great Art Hafey, who's a name you should look up. Art Hafey was the best featherweight on earth in the 1970s, rated above the champion by Ring Magazine. He knew um, Jimmy McLaren, and McLaren said to him the same thing he said to another great Canadian fighter, flyweight, Ian Clyde. He said to both of these gentlemen, he said, that was the thing he said, he said, a fighter can always afford to be a gentleman. And McLarnon had heard that from, from uh, James J. Corbett. And he always took that 
seriously. You know, when he was supposed to fight Benny Leonard, who lost all his money in the stock market crash from the Great Depression, uh, McLaren said, I don't want to do this, Benny. You don't, you know, you're beating these bums in your comeback. Let me just give you money. And Leonard said, no, I deserve a chance to fight you. You're one of the top fighters. Let me do it. And he said, I don't want to hurt you. Please let me just help you out financially. I can afford it. You can pay me back whenever or not. And he wouldn't. Leonard wouldn't take it. So McLaren gave him a terrible beating. And the referee had to stop it after six rounds. And McLaren was in tears because Benny Leonard was his hero. And he was also really upset when Leonard died in his 50s in 1946 from a heart attack while refereeing a fight. So McLaren was well-connected in the sport. He was well-loved. He's one of the all-time great fighters. If you get a chance, just before we wrap up here, you can go to YouTube and get the full 15-round third fight between McLaren and, and Ross. And the great thing about this fight, not only the ebb and flow of it, but unlike a lot of fights from that era or even the 20s or films of other sports, the speed isn't off. They're actually fighting at the speed you would watch today. So if people, you know, last night saw the Vegas, uh, not Vegas, the, the fight between, um, between the Filipino fighter and uh, Maxaya and, and Ray Vargas, if they saw that fight, that was similar to the third Ross McLaren fight. It was fought at that pace, a very quick pace for the full 15 rounds. Dempsey's scorecard, I thought, wasn't legit. Uh, there was something wrong. And years later, when asked about it, Dempsey said, you know, listen, I'm one guy. The Bob had all their meetings about fixing fights in my restaurant. You think they would have hesitated to kill me if I'd come out and said something about the Ross McLaren third fight, my scorecard? He said, I can't fight the mob on my own. All I could do was say, yes, sir, no, sir. And anyone else who thinks they could have done better, let me know who you are. And he was right. You just couldn't fight them. So it was a great fight. It was it helped the people during the Depression. It gave them something to live for. It gave them that precious commodity of hope. And both fighters held their head high after each fight. And McLaren, especially after the third fight, he shook Ross's hand. He said, I thought I won it, but I'm happy for Barney. He's a great fighter and he's a great person. And two more fights, and then McLaren retires. And there was never any controversy about him. He was a faithful husband. He was a great father and grandfather. Very smart. And when his manager, Pop Foster, died in 1955, he had 500 grand saved up, and he left all of it to Jimmy McLaren. Foster was a surrogate father to him. And Foster would always send money from his portion, not McLaren's, but from his portion to, uh, of McLaren's earnings to McLaren's family in Vancouver to help them out. McLaren was also, there's great articles on the internet by Andy Lytle, the Toronto star, he became good friends of McLaren and covered the fight. So this is a great fight. McLaren's one of the top, may be the greatest Canadian fighter of all time, along with Sam Langford, who never won a title, and George Dixon. So you have to give these guys credit they saved the sport of boxing during the Great Depression. They filled stadiums when people had no money, and they gave people hope. And, you know, when you look back at your life and when you look back at people's accomplishments, giving someone hope is probably, next to money, the greatest thing you can do for them. So if you get a chance, go to YouTube, watch the third McLaren fight, McLaren Ross. In fact, if you can, watch all three fights. But the third one is just a humdinger. It's just... 
it's just back and forth for all 15 rounds. Neither fighter took a moment off, and it's well worth watching. I hope you enjoyed today's edition of Ring Talk. I want to thank Eric Boyce for, for uh, producing the show so well, and I want to thank you, the viewer, for watching. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you again next Sunday at 2. Have a great day.